Will you join me in prayer, please? Father, we come to you today, and we want to say thank you that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen, Bethel? That we stand before you holy, righteous, and just in your sight, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your rich mercy and grace that you have given us in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that uh, what you have done for us, we will learn today to extend to other people. We pray that you will open your word to us, help us to understand how you would have us to handle the difficulties and the conflicts that you sovereignly bring into our lives. Lord, I pray today that you will uh, comfort those who need to be comforted, that you will challenge those who need to be challenged. We pray, Lord, that you will save those who need to be saved. We pray that your church may be built up. We pray that we will be equipped to serve you, to bring glory to Jesus Christ, and to bring honor to you. We pray that my words will be your words. We pray that your spirit will be with us, and he will help us to understand what your word has to say. For your glory, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, say hello Bethel. If you're uh, new uh, this morning, my name is Chris Carr. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to open up God's Word uh, with us today. And uh, we're going to begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, actually the same passage that we looked at last week. And I've been given the assignment to take uh, what we talked about last week and really what we've talked about uh, in all of 1 Corinthians in regards to conflict and to give the Big picture view of what the Bible has to say about being peacemakers and how to resolve conflict biblically. So, let's begin by reading uh, the first eight verses of chapter 6. Paul says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are or have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Now, Steve did a great job of expositing this passage last week, and so I'm not going to go through that again. But I do want to bring out two points, two assumptions that Paul clearly makes here in these eight verses that will set the tone for the rest of the message today. First of all, you'll note in verse 1 that Paul assumes that Christians are going to have conflict. He doesn't say if you have a grievance. He says when you have a grievance. Now this is a pretty good assumption, right? Can I do a little bit of a, a poll here this morning? How many of you have never had conflict in your life? Never. You've lived a perfectly blissful life. I almost had conflict there. I almost tripped and fell right on my face this morning. How many of you lived a perfectly blissful life, never had any conflict? Do we have anybody here this morning? I don't think so. In fact, I could probably ask how many of you have not had conflict yet today, and I would get the same answer. The reality is, is that we all have conflict, and really we have lots of conflict. We have conflict with God, 
We have conflict with one another. We have conflict with creation. Anybody experiencing that this morning? Yeah. It's supposed to be spring. We have conflict even with ourselves. Some of you have major conflict just over what you were going to wear to church this morning. The reality is, is that conflict is a fact of life. This week, the car household, like many of you, uh, was on spring break. And so early in the week, we took a little trip uh, to Wisconsin for a couple days. And I have to tell you that there is nothing better to bring out conflict that you have than three days in a little hotel room with five other people, four of them being under the age of 11. Vacations are great if for nothing else than they simply bring out that conflict that you have. And we have conflict, though, because we're sinners, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Don't have to uh, go very far in the Bible to see conflict. No, God created the world. He created a perfect world. He created a perfect man. He created a perfect woman. There was absolutely no conflict, no problems, no issues with anything. And then sin entered. And as a result, we are sinners. And when you put sinners together, you get conflict. And the reality for us is that we can't escape it. It's just a fact of life. And we've seen here in the Corinthian church that they had lots of conflict. We're only in chapter 6, and we've got a lot left to go, and there's a lot more conflict. But the problem with the church at Corinth wasn't that they had conflict. It was how they were handling conflict, how they were dealing with the divisions and the issues that they had. And the same thing is true for us. In a sinful world, conflict is inevitable. We can't run away from it. We can't deny it. It's just a fact of life. There's coming a day, a glorious day, a wonderful day, when conflict will cease. Are you looking forward to that day? There is a day, the Bible tells us, if you read the other end of the story, Revelation, where Christ is going to come back, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and he's going to take those who are his children, and he's going to return them to the state that Adam and Eve were in, in the Garden of Eden. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more tears. There will be no more issues. We will live at peace with everyone, ourselves, God, and creation. It's going to be a great day. But that isn't today. Which comes to, or leads us to, Paul's second assumption in 1 Corinthians 6. And that is, for today, God has equipped Christians with the ability to be able to handle and deal with conflict in a way that will produce peace. He has given us the ability to be peacemakers and to resolve conflict in a way that is God-honoring, Christ-exalting, and relationship-transforming. Now, I don't know if you believe that when you came in this morning, but I hope you will, and I hope you will be equipped to take those relationships that you struggle with and to take those conflicts that you struggle with right now and be able to claim them and use them to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into the message, I need to give credit to whom credit is due and, and mention a book that Pastor Steve intro to you last week. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. We've got these available. I'll talk more about it at the end of the, the message. But mu- much of my message is based upon material that comes from this book. Ken Sandy is an attorney, has a great ministry. He's got a website, hispeace.org. You can check out a lot of resources. Other than the Bible, I have read and used this book more than any other book during my time in ministry here at Bethel. 
God has given me the opportunity and the privilege to teach this material to really hundreds and hundreds of people, both inside the church and outside the church, seeing God do some amazing things, produce some amazing fruit in transforming people and transforming relationships. And so we highly recommend this. Now, at the same time, anytime we recommend a book, we've got to be careful because this is a book that is written by man. And there's a difference between books like this and books, this, not books like this, this book here. The power in this book comes from how closely it aligns with what this book has to say. And this book is our authority, not this book. But the peacemaker does closely align with what the Bible says and therefore has a great deal of help for us in that. Now, with that intro, let me get into the message today. And for our time together, I want to give you four steps. The four steps that the Bible gives to resolving conflict biblically. Four steps this morning. We're going to begin. Step number one is to view conflict as a God-given opportunity. View conflict as a God-given opportunity. Last week we also introduced you to you a little graph. We'll show it up here. Called the slippery slope. The slippery slope is helpful because it shows the normal ways in which we respond to conflict. Over here on the left, we have the escape responses of denial, flight, and suicide. These are also known as the peace-faking responses. On the right, we have the attack responses or the peace-breaking responses of assault, litigation, and murder. By the way, if you look at this and you say, you know, um, I've never murdered anyone and I never plan on murdering anyone. I can't see myself ever doing that. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are guilty of murder. Which means that we probably have a room full of murderers here uh, in this auditorium today. We normally, in our normal fleshly state, are on one of the two sides of this equation. I find that I actually vacillate between the two depending upon what kind of mood I am or who I uh, am in conflict with. There are times where I like to deny or flee, and there are times where I go on the attack. You might find yourself in that case as well. But where we want to be is we want to be in the center. We want to learn how to use the biblical peacemaking responses to bring peace into our relationship. You know, much of us would, or most of us would much rather have a root canal than to endure even a little bit of conflict. But... Regardless of where we are, God's word has a different approach, which begins by understanding that conflict provides us with at least two wonderful opportunities. Number one, conflict gives us the opportunity to bring glory to God. Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. It's probably only a couple pages over. We're going to look at a verse that uh, we know very well, very familiar verse in Scripture. But this verse shows us that conflict gives us the opportunity to bring glory to God. Paul says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now you know this verse, but have you ever read it and understood it in its context? This verse comes in the midst of a letter in which Paul is dealing almost exclusively with conflict in the church. And so he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, this would include conflict Include all of the issues that you're going through. Do it all to the glory of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's point here is that he wants the Corinthians to follow his example in bringing glory to God despite their circumstances and despite the struggles that they were experiencing with one another. He wants them to get the point that their relationships weren't supposed to be about them, but rather about opportunities to serve one another and to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And I just need to point out to you here today, you need to realize that the relationships that you have with people, whether it's your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your neighbor, is not about you. It's not about you. It's about opportunities to bring glory to Jesus Christ and about opportunities to serve the other person. You weren't created, or I should say it this way, they weren't created for you. You were created for God and created to serve other people. That's why you exist, not the other way around. You know, around here we have a little slogan we use quite often. Help me with it. You know what it is, right? It starts with, it's all about him. It's all about him. The all and it's all about him includes all conflict. I had a teacher in high school that repeatedly said to me over and over again, all means all and that's all that all means. Apparently had issues with trying to get around things and figure out loopholes and stuff like that. So he just repeatedly said, all means all, and that's all that all means. This all and all about him includes all of the conflict that we face. It is about bringing glory to Jesus Christ. A lot of times we think that conflict is about us, something that we need to run away from, we need to get away from, it's bad. No, it's not bad. It's actually good because it gives us opportunities to bring glory to Jesus Christ. We do this, by the way, by handling or biblically stewarding conflict in a way that shows how much we trust and value him. Now, you'll note the conflict not only gives us the opportunity to glorify God, it also gives us the opportunity for sanctification. Sanctification is a great term. The Bible talks a lot about it. But uh, this term basically refers to the process by which we are in in transform, transforming us and growing us in our faith and becoming more like Jesus Christ. I didn't say that very well. Let me say it again. Sanctification is the process whereby we become more holy and we become more like Jesus Christ. It's what your life is about after you come to faith in Jesus Christ is to become more holy, to become more like him. And conflict provides a wonderful opportunity here because it puts us in the situations where our real nature comes out. For example, some of you have been looking at this the whole time saying, why in the world would he have a syrup bottle up here on the stage? You haven't heard a thing that I've said. Let me explain why I have a syrup bottle here. Uh, If I were to open this up and I were to squeeze this bottle, this is a very simple illustration. It's not tricky, okay? And I were to squeeze this, okay, what's going to come out? Syrup. Very good. Very good. Now I have a question for you. If you were to take me... And you were to squeeze me. Actually, I need to, be, I, I need to say this the right way. Because last night I asked if you were to squeeze me. And there was a young girl who said something that wouldn't be appropriate necessarily. Uh, she, yeah, she was thinking squeeze, literally squeeze me. What would come out. And uh, I've been accused that I'm full of stuff. But uh, anyways, that's not the point that I'm uh, trying to get across here. All right. What I mean is, is if you were to put me in an environment where there is pressure on me. And there is conflict, and there is difficulty, and there is stress. What's going to come out? Well, since I'm a sinner, what comes out of a sinner when they are stressed and when they are squeezed? It's 
sin. That's what happens. When we've got stress and we've got pressure and we've got conflict, sin comes out. And in reality, this is wonderful. You might think that this is bad, but in reality, it's really good because all of a sudden now I'm faced with the fact that I'm not doing as good as I thought I was. I've got problems. I've got issues. I've got things I've got to work with. And all of a sudden now, God's got my attention and he can begin to work on me. When things are comfortable in my life and I'm doing great, theoretically, I'm just walking along, I begin to get the idea that I'm okay, that I can do this in my own strength. And so God then realizes, oh, I've got to get his attention. And he brings situations into my life which bring stress upon me, which bring out bad habits and bad attitudes and bad things. And all of a sudden now, I've got some work to do. I'm thoroughly convinced, by the way, that this is why God gives us spouses. Really. I realize that there are a number of single people here today, and um, I just have to say, apparently, you are more holy than I am. I really do believe that God gives us spouses, and then he gives us children, because that's the only way that he can get our attention to show us how selfish we really, really are. You know, when you have to live in an environment where there are other people that you have to think about, and you have to care about, and you have to consider in your life, all of a sudden, you begin to realize that life isn't all about you. Some people pick this up faster uh, than others. I'll have to say it certainly was the case for me. Uh, my wife and I, Eva, have been married for 13 years. We have a great marriage. She's a wonderful lady, and uh, she's my best friend. But, um, you know, there were a couple of times early on where I didn't think we were going to make it. And uh, mostly because of either my sin or my stupidity. Uh, For example, can you imagine coming home, you've been married for two months, and you walk in the door, and your wife's holding two credit cards? Okay? Some of you can't imagine that, maybe more than that. But this wasn't your normal credit card issue. One of the credit cards had my name on it. The other credit card had the uh, name of an old girlfriend of mine on it. Yeah, yeah. I did, I did something stupid in college, and uh, all of you teenagers here do not do this, but I got a credit card in college, and then I compounded that problem by getting uh, my girlfriend on the account with me. And then I triply compounded that. After we broke up, I left her on the account, forgot about it, and so when the new cards came after I was married to our new home, it came with her name on it. It's really hard to explain, let me just tell you. Instant conflict. Thankfully, Eva was very gracious, and uh, you know, there are things where we do stupid things like that, and then there are things where we do sinful things, and they all have a way of God using those things to conform us and to transform us into what he wants us to be. In all of the conflict in life, we have to understand this principle, and that is the fact that God is most concerned about our holiness, God's primary desire for you is not for you to be healthy. His primary desire for you is not for you to be wealthy. It's not even, frankly, for you to be happy and carefree. His primary desire and overarching desire for your life is that you will be holy and become like his son. We all love Romans 8, 28, right? You probably can quote it to me. It says this. And we know that for those who love God... 
all things work together for good. We love this passage. It's wonderful. God's going to work everything for my good, which to many of us means that God's going to work this out exactly the way that I want it, and my life is going to be wonderful and great, and I'm going to be wealthy, and I'm going to be healthy, and everything I want, I'm going to get. The problem is, is that's not what Romans 8 says, because you go to verse 29, and Paul adds this, for, for, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good that God is working in your life through all of your difficulties is to transform you into the image and the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That is his primary goal. And God will do whatever he needs to to conform you and to make you like his son. Because he knows that the best thing for you is for you to be holy. And the more that you are like Jesus, the more holy that you will be. And as we saw several weeks ago, in the end, holiness equals happiness. So when we take conflict and we run from it, we are actually running from the good things that God wants to do in our life. That's why James 1, 1 tells us that we should count it all joy when we face temptations and difficulties and trials of many kinds, because what it is working in our life is perseverance. And perseverance works maturity so that we might not lack anything. So if you look at that conflict that you're having or conflicts that you're having, and you think, this is bad, this is terrible, God, why are you allowing it? God is saying, I'm allowing it because I want you to be holy. And the result of your holiness will be your happiness. Hebrews 12 says that he disciplines those who are his son, sons. If you have difficulty in your life, God very well may be disciplining you for your good. God does this in our lives. Perfect example in the Bible of this is Job. Job was a godly man. In fact, the Bible says that he was blameless and he was upright. And yet Satan comes to God and says, let me try Job. And God says, okay, I will let you do that. The only thing you can't do is take his life. And so Satan brings all kinds of things into Job's life. Job loses his children. He loses his home. He loses his livelihood. He loses his fortune. At the end of the day, Job is sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He has nothing except for his wife. And she is probably the one thing that he would have liked to get rid of. Really. I mean... He's sitting there, he's lost everything, and she says, why don't you just curse God and die? That's the story. Read Job 1. And yet, if we read the rest of the story, we know very clearly that God had two purposes in this trial. The one purpose was to show Satan and show Job's friends and to show the world that Job loved God above everything else that he had. Job brought great glory to God through the way that he handled the conflict. And the second reason was so that Job could grow in his faith and he could learn things about God that he didn't understand before the trial. There are things that can only be learned about God through the fire of trial. It's the only way. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. If you're a believer here today, everything that God brings into your life, he will use to bring glory to himself and bring good to you. We want to be able to say, as Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that song here, do we really mean it? God, you can do whatever you want. Take, take, take the good, give me the bad. It doesn't matter, I'm going to praise you. 
Because I know in the end it's good for me. We know this because Romans 8 goes on to say this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to me on this point. If you get nothing else today, get this point. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed, as we talked about before, your biggest problem in life by far has been taken care of. You realize that? That before you came to know Christ, you were on your way to hell. You were separated from God. You were bound to do that for eternity. That's the biggest problem that anybody can have by a long shot. And yet, through Jesus Christ and the faith that God gives you to believe in him, he has now rescued you from that and he has given you eternal life. You will spend eternity with him. And in comparison to what God has done for you, every other thing that we face in life pales in comparison. And if we can trust him to take care of our eternity, can't we trust him to deal with today? Can't we trust that he is gracious? You know, he already gave us his son. Can't we trust him to give us a little bit else? That's what Paul is saying here. So friends, stop viewing conflict as something to run from and rather run to it, embrace it, as a wonderful opportunity to glorify God and to grow in your faith. So that's the first step towards being a peacemaker. View conflict as an opportunity. Second, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 7. Second step is to deal with your own issues first. Deal with your own issues first. Matthew 7, Jesus is smack in the middle of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 1 through 5, we read this. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, essentially what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 is that when we face conflict with someone, before we talk to them about their issues, we need to address our own issues first. Can we just uh, be open with one another this morning, admit that we all have issues? We all have issues, don't we? Aren't we all dysfunctional in some way? You know, there might be somebody in here who would say, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. I, I don't really have any problems. And I would just have to say for the rest of us who actually live on planet Earth, we need to admit that we do have problems. We have issues. I'll admit to you that I do. You know, us pastors, we're not perfect. Okay? Just ask the people who work in the office with us. They'll tell you for sure. And not to give you a laundry list, but I'll tell you what, that uh, for me personally, I struggle with impatience. Anybody who knows me would agree to that. I could struggle with pride. I could struggle with anger. And just to be brutally honest, if I'm not careful, I can struggle with lust. This week we spent three days at a water park. Generally, I avoid water parks. And I do so because most of the time I've either got to spend staring at the floor or staring at the ceiling so I can avoid all of the exposed flesh. 
Now, you might think that that's strange, and, and it does result in some nasty bruises and bumps and all these things from running into chairs and, and things. But in all seriousness, Jesus said it's much better than the alternative, which is spending eternity in hell. And all the men in the room here understand it's a reality, it's an issue that we face, it's a struggle. But you know what? What the world and what we tend to call issues or problems or struggles, the Bible has a different word. Sin. It's not a politically correct word. It's not a word that you're going to hear on MSNBC or CNN or the nightly news. We'll talk about the problems that we face, but we'll never get to the point of the matter. And that is, is that it's sin. Romans 3, 23 says that we all sin and we all fall short of God's standard. We're all imperfect. We're not even close. And if you don't believe me, just ask your spouse. They will be happy to confirm the fact that you're not perfect. It's a reality that we live with. And while there are some conflicts that are one-sided, in most of the conflicts that we face in life, we contribute to the problem most of the time significantly. And what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 7 is before we begin to address the other people in the conflict, or the people that we have the conflict with, before we begin to talk with them about their issues, we need to get the two-by-four out of our own eye. This is a two-by-four, right? Wouldn't you find it really strange if I walked in here today with this two-by-four sticking out of my eye, and I was only concerned about talking to you about what your uh, shirt looked like and the problems with it or how I didn't like the fact of the look on your face or how, you know, you really didn't sit up in the front like we asked you to. You'd be like, dude, you've got a two-by-four coming out of your eye. Why are you talking to me about my problems? <laughs> Do you get the point? That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. He's like, You know, Jesus used hyperbole a lot. He exaggerated a lot because he wanted to make a point. And the point is this, is that you've got a big, big issue. Don't be a hypocrite and be so worried about the little issue that somebody else might have when you've got a huge log in your own eye. And I found out by experience, if I do it correctly and I address and get that two by four out of my own eye, all of a sudden now I see much clearer. In fact, that's what Jesus says in verse 5. Once you get the log out of your eye, now you actually will be able to see clearly what's going on with your brother. And I found out a lot of times if I get the log out of my eye, I realize that that speck or that big issue that I thought my brother had, he doesn't really have, it was my issue all along. What I think is his problem was actually my problem. And things don't seem so as important anymore. And all of a sudden the conflict is gone. And what Jesus wants to get across here is this, is that we all have sin in our lives. We all have things that we need to deal with. And before you go around telling everybody what they need to do, make sure that you get your issues settled first. Now, some have actually taken this passage to say that we actually should never talk to anyone about the issues in your life. And that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. He's saying you should address the sin in other people's lives, but only after you address your sin first. This leads us to step three, which is to restore others biblically. So when you're faced with a conflict, you begin by saying, okay, God, this is an opportunity that you have sovereignly brought my way. How do I use it to glorify you? What are you trying to teach me here? How do you want me to grow? 
After you've done that, you have to say, okay, how have I contributed to this problem? What have I done? What two by four do I have in my eye? How do I get rid of it? Once you've gotten rid of the two by four, then you come and say, okay, now God, what would you have me to do? Or how would you have me to address the person that I am having conflict with? I have intentionally, by the way, used the word restore here rather than confront. There's a reason for that. It's because the point and the goal of confronting someone is actually not confrontation, but rather restoration. Let me make this point. A lot of people miss this. If you're going to talk to somebody else about a problem they have in their life, how they've offended you, how they've sinned, you need to have the purpose and the goal to restoring them to God and to you. If your goal in talking to somebody about what they have done is that you just want to point it out or you want to get it off your chest. By the way, don't get stuff off your chest. What's that? Okay? That's just a way to to say I can be angry because you've done something to me. No, if you're going to talk to somebody about something that they have done, your goal needs to be restoration, not confrontation. Restore them to God and restore them to you. Now, before we actually talk about restoration, I need to mention something important here, and that is overlooking. Okay? Overlooking. The Bible strongly, strongly urges us that before we even work at confrontation or restoration, we need to first of all ask the question, is this something that I need to bring up in the first place, or is it something that I can just overlook and cover with love? A couple of passages for Proverbs say this, twelve sixteen: A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. 1911, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. One of the problems that we face in our culture today is that we're way too easily offended. We're way too overly sensitive. A lot of us just need to get over ourselves and take it easy. We walk around looking over our shoulder trying to figure out who's going to say something to us and who's going to offend us or who's thinking this about it. And we just need to learn to quit being foolish as the proverb says, and we need to be wise. The wise person is patient. The foolish person takes an insult and they just go to the max with it. This is especially important, by the way, in marriage. If you're going to have a successful, long-term, peaceful marriage, you've got to learn to overlook minor, trivial offenses. As we talked about, we, all, you know, we do have issues. Things that sometimes aren't even sin There are things like leaving the clothes on the floor, okay, leaving the cabinets open, leaving the toilet seat up or down, those kind of things. By the way, ladies, can we just get over that one for a minute, all right? If we've got to put it down, why why can't you put it up? I don't even remember what I'm supposed to do anymore, okay? Just deal with it, okay? Overlook it. There's a hundreds and hundreds of little issues that we could talk about that we just need to cover over with love. Now, I'm not talking about big sin issues, habitual sin issues, okay? We're going to talk about that in a second. There are things that you shouldn't overlook. But there are some things that perhaps aren't habits, okay? Bad sinful habits, things that aren't causing major, major issues that we just need to let go out of love. And by the way, in doing this, We're simply modeling how God treats us. Psalm 103 says this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Are you thankful that we have a God like that and he treats us like that? If you are, start treating your spouse and your children and your friends and your co-workers like God has treated you. And if you will do that, you will make your life so much easier. I would estimate, frankly, that 90% of the conflict that we have could simply be overlooked and we could just cover it with love. Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that being said, overlooking can easily be the answer to everything and can easily turn into denial. So we need to understand that there are times where we need to address the sin in others' lives. A key passage here is Galatians 6. Where Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's some really interesting imagery in here. You've got to love the Greek language because it's very rich. Okay, much richer than our English language. And it gives us a, a full picture here. The word for caught is prolambano, which literally picture, pictures a fisherman who has a net, and he's ready to cast it over the side, but he's got his foot stuck in the net, and he doesn't realize it. And in casting the net over the side, he's not only going to throw the net in, he's also going to throw himself in, he's going to get tangled in the net, and he's going to drown himself. And Paul is picturing for us here that there are people in the church who are caught in sin, they're trapped, they don't realize it, they're about to kill themselves, literally, spiritually, And those who are spiritual, which God calls us all to be in the church, are to restore this person gently. The word for restore is katartizo, which means to mend a net. To mend a net. And so what Paul is telling us is that if we see someone who is caught in a sin, they're trapped, they don't realize that this is a habitual big time sin, and they're headed to spiritual death, that we need to step in and to mend their net. We need to restore them gently. I really, really believe that we don't understand how seriously God would have us to take this issue of restoring others. This is the whole problem in the church at Corinth. We read in chapter 5, there's a guy in the church who's having um, relations with his mother, his stepmother, and the church is saying, hey, no problem, no big deal. We'll just let you go. This guy is in a trap. He doesn't realize it. He's heading to death. And they're saying we're not going to do anything about it. It's not how God would have us to handle it. We've been so influenced by our culture. We've adopted the attitudes of let live and live and let live. What they do is none of my business. As long as it's in the privacy of your own home. Okay, that's their life. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? And while we're not called to judge, we are called to help. There's a lot of hurting people in the church today. People who are walking around struggling with sin that they're blind to. They just can't see it. And what they really need is a true friend that will love them enough to gently but forcefully confront them regarding their sin. Proverbs 27 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me ask you, In the relationship with your friends. Are you a friend or are you an enemy? A friend wounds. A friend will hurt at times. Love hurts. Love always makes harder choices. 
You might think that you're a friend when in reality you're an enemy. Let's work at restoring others biblically for their good, for the good of the church, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's step three. Let's finish up with the fourth, final, and probably the most important step, and that is to practice biblical forgiveness. Practice biblical forgiveness. We're faced with a conflict. We're going to say, how can I use this for God's glory and for my good? What log do I need to get out of my own eye? What sin do I need to address in my own life? How can I help the other person in the conflict to see how they need to grow in the Lord? And then finally, we want to finish it by practicing biblical forgiveness. There's a lot that can be said about forgiveness. It's worthy of its own series just in and of itself. But here's the big point about forgiveness. Here's what the Bible tells us about forgiveness. The way in which we are called to forgive others should be modeled after the way that God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I am called to forgive those who have offended me in the same way that God has forgiven my offenses against him. John Piper says it this way. I am called to take what God has done for me vertically, top to bottom, and I am to bend it out horizontally to my brothers and sisters. So since God has been kind and compassionate and gracious and loving and forgiving to me, he has poured that into my life. Now he calls me to take what he has given me and to bend it out horizontally to you. My calling in my life is to be kind, compassionate, gracious, loving, and most of all in this passage, forgiving to you, not because of me, but because of what Christ has done for me. Now, if we're going to do that, we need to understand a little bit more about what forgiveness looks like or how God has forgiven us. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four is helpful here. It says this, and no longer shall each or shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice here that Jeremiah says that forgiveness isn't feeling and it isn't forgetting. Notice that God doesn't say that he can't remember our sin he says that he won't remember our sin forgiveness is not a feeling you don't feel like forgiving people it's not something that you forget over time rather it's a decision it's a verb it's active it's just like peace and it's just like love it's a choice that we have to make to forgive and remember them no more Forgiveness is something that God chooses to do based upon Christ's work on the cross. And therefore, it is something that we must choose to do based upon what Christ has done for us. Let me give you a little bit more flesh to this. The word forgive literally means to release from the penalty of an offense. To release from the penalty of an offense. So when we see Isaiah 59 two, which says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's the penalty for our sin. We're separated from God. 
When God forgives us, he takes that separation and he removes us and he restores us to him. That's what Ephesians 2.13 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see that? We were separated from God. That's the penalty for sin. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. We're born dead in our sins. We're separated from God. When we by faith trust in what Christ did for us on the cross, God removes that penalty, forgives our sins, and restores us to a relationship with him. Therefore, if we're going to forgive others as God has forgiven us, it means that we're, when we say forgive, we are going to remove the separation that is between us, remove that wall that has come up because they have offended us, and we are going to be restored to a relationship with them. The sin is going to be removed. It's going to be gone. This does not mean, by the way, that you automatically return to the state that you were before. But it does mean that reconciliation is possible and it is the goal of forgiveness. You know, when you knock down a wall, you've got rubble hanging around, right? That you've got to clean up and that you've got to pick up and you've got to work at restoring the room to the way it was before. Same thing is true in a relationship. But you don't knock the wall down and just leave the rubble hanging out all over the place. You clean it up. And that's the point here of forgiveness. Now sometimes people say, I forgive them, I just don't want anything to do with them anymore. I find that strange, don't you? I forgive them, I just don't want to have a relationship with them anymore. Can you imagine if God said that to us? Your sins are forgiven, I just don't want to talk with you ever again. Are you glad that God didn't treat you like that? His forgiveness means that he not only removes the penalty... He restores us to a relationship with him. Now, let me talk to you a moment about unforgiveness. I realize that there are those of you here today who are probably struggling with that. Most of us have in our life at some point. My prayer for you is that God will release you from your bitterness and allow you to forgive as he has forgiven you. And there's a quote by Ken Sandy here in The Peacemaker that maybe will help you on this point. He says this, Unforgiveness is the poison you drink, hoping others will die. Unforgiveness is the poison you drink, hoping others will die. That's what it is. Unforgiveness and bitterness is a nasty poison. And frankly, it might, talk, it might taste well going down, but if you allow it to stay there, it will eat you from the inside. And the person that gets hurt the most by unforgiveness is not the person that you are not forgiving, it's you. Jesus tells us that unforgiveness actually will separate us from God. Now in saying all of this, I don't want to deny the fact that there are some of you who have been hurt indescribably in ways that many people, including me, will never understand. I don't mean to make uh, forgiveness sound easy. It certainly wasn't for Jesus. And I realize that there are deep, deep wounds that some of you have. But Bethel, I do know this. I do know that forgiveness is possible in every situation. And the reason for that is is that Christ paid for all sin. Past, present, and future on the cross. Even the unspeakable sins that hurt so much. As Jesus actually was hanging on the cross, looking out at the people who had nailed him there. As they spit upon him and they reviled him and they yelled at him and said nasty things to him. The God of the universe who is paying for their sins. 
Jesus didn't think about himself. He says to the Father, Father, do what? Forgive them. Father, forgive them. And friends, there is no sin that anyone can commit against you that will even compare to the sin that you have committed against God. None. Not one. And as he has forgiven us through his son's sacrifice, so he calls us to forgive others as well. I want to tell you a story here to finish that hopefully will illustrate true forgiveness in a powerful way. In the 1940s, there was a family that lived in the Netherlands, Christian family. In that family, there was a young lady named Corey Ten Boom. You probably have heard of her. Corey and her family during World War II actually hid uh, Jewish refugees in their home. Towards the end of the war, a Dutch informant reported them to the Nazis, which resulted in Corey, her sister Betsy, and her father all being sent to prison. Ten days after they were in prison, because of the brutal treatment, their dad died. Both Corey and Betsy were sent to concentration camp. Six months after being in the concentration camp, Betsy died. And then a week before the entire camp was to be exterminated, due to a clerical error, Corey was actually released. After the war, she traveled around the world, primarily in Europe, speaking to large groups of people about God's grace and love. Here's what she wrote about an encounter that she had in Germany. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along to my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Forgiveness is possible, friends, because Jesus has provided it. Jesus has commanded it. And what he provides and he commands, he always empowers. You can forgive in his strength. Will you stand with me, please?